Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. One of my favorite things about the Bible is that it makes no effort to hide the faults of its heroes. In 2 Samuel, there's a story of King David. It's a time when kings go off to war and for whatever reason, David decides not to. So all the soldiers and all the men have gone to fight and David is in the palace. And he gets bored laying around on the couch all day, so he goes up on the roof. You don't have indoor plumbing at the time, so when people bathed, they would often bathe on the roof as that would afford them a sense of privacy, except for, for the palace, which is higher up. David goes up on the roof and he sees a woman bathing. That is likely the reason he went up there. He's attracted to the woman. So he inquires about her. Turns out she is the wife of one of his elite warriors, a man by the name of Uriah. David decides, I don't care, sends for her, sleeps with her, she gets pregnant. Now David's in a pickle. So he has Uriah brought back to give an account of the war. Talks with Uriah a little bit, then sends him home, says, hey man, go home, enjoy your bed, sleep with your wife, and then we'll send you back to the war tomorrow. But Uriah was a man of honor, and he did not feel right about going into his home sleeping in the comfort of his own bed and enjoying company with his wife while his men fought for their lives. So he slept outside, really bamboozling David's plan. So David sends for him again, and this time he gets him drunk, hoping that an intoxicated Uriah would do what a sober Uriah would not. Even intoxicated, Uriah had too much honor, too much conviction to go inside his own home when his men were fighting for their lives. So David writes a note to his commander to ensure that Uriah gets killed in battle. He gives the note to Uriah and he has Uriah take it to his commander. He makes Uriah carry his own death note. David knowingly, willfully, intentionally commits adultery and murder. And the most amusing thing about a pa being a pastor is I have people come to me all the time weighed down by the guilt and shame of their sin. And they're like, you don't understand what I've done. You don't understand the, the sins that I've committed and how bad it is. If you knew, you would know that there's not enough grace for me. God couldn't possibly save me. And I just want to say, like, look at the Bible. Compared to the heroes of Scripture, your sin is bush league. Okay? You're basic. Like we get, but we get this guilt and we shame ourselves for it so much that we lose perspective on the fact that the sins of the heroes of Scripture are sometimes truly incredible things. Because David is the greatest king in the history of Israel and called a man after God's own heart. But there's a problem with David's sin. We're going to put a pin in that, and we're going to come back to it at the end. So just kind of hold on to that thought, because right now, we got a really special text that we need to get into. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. 
starting in verse 1, where we get a summary of the furniture in the wilderness tabernacle. What? I've been waiting for this moment for so long where we get to talk about furniture in church. I'm so excited. It's like biblical rooms to go. Right? Yes. Right? Because rooms to go, they sell furniture, and the tabernacle's a portable tent. This thing's got layers, people. This is a multi-layered joke. And it's still bad. There's a temptation that we face when we come to a text like this. It's not a John 3.16. It's not a Romans 3.24 or a Psalm 23. It's not a text that has clear, immediate application to our lives. And when we come to texts like this in Scripture, it's easy to gloss over them. Skip them all together. After all, what's the point? What's this have to do with me? Why should I care? Because God said it. Every word that comes from the mouth of God is important. The Bible is God's love letter to us. It is the greatest self-revelation that we have from the creator of the universe. And everything in it has value. But this actually has so much value that God doesn't just detail it in the Old Testament. He repeats it in the New Testament. So for some reason, God decided that you needed to hear this and I needed to hear this twice. And when the Bible repeats itself, the people of God should pay very close attention. This church, something has been lost. And getting it back begins with an understanding of the tabernacle. So the tabernacle is the sanctuary of God. It was a portable tent where God's presence dwelt among his people. And all the tribes, as they went through the wilderness, would camp around this tent so that the tabernacle was always situated at the geographical heart of Israel. It is a 150-foot-long, 75-foot-wide tent completely enclosed in perfectly white walls which symbolized the holiness of its function. When you walk in, you're in the outer court, and in front of you is a bronze altar used for burnt offerings. There are little horns at each corner that have animals tied to them. You could come in, lay your hands on the head of the animal, and confess your sin. And that's as far as you and I get. Our access in the tabernacle is the petting zoo, and we're done. It's priests only beyond this point. Beyond the altar is a large bronze wash basin that the, that the priests would use for ceremonial cleansing before going further in. Past the wash basin is the tabernacle itself. 15 foot tall, 15 foot wide, 45 foot long, flat roofed tent. Inside you have beautifully woven, very vibrantly colored tapestries overlaid by two layers of animal skins. The room is split in two by a giant ornate curtain that is supported by four golden columns set on silver bases. That separates the holy place from the most holy place. And that gives us the basic view of the setting of what our author is going to talk to us about in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which was a lampstand, a table, and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. 
So in the holy place, what you have is a lampstand and a table that has what's called the showbread. It's 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So the bread and the lampstand are actually prophetic foreshadows of Jesus. The lampstand representing Jesus as the light of the world, the bread representing Jesus as the bread of life. When Jesus uses those in the New Testament, he's calling back to these things in the holy place. Verse 3, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. Okay, what's interesting here is that the author of Hebrews puts the incense in the most holy place. In the Old Testament, the incense was in the holy place. That is not a contradiction. The author is making a very specific point. Incense was used as purification and was used in conjunction with prayer. And it symbolizes Jesus as our great high priest being in the presence of God, continually offering prayers on our behalf. Continuing on. In which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things. We cannot now speak in detail. So manna represents God's provision. It's what God provided for the Israelites when they were wandering through the desert. He provided it daily. Don't take more than you need for the day. And God provided for them each and every day. The staff is actually kind of interesting. There was this period where the Israelites were arguing and bickering about the priesthood and deciding who should get to be the high priest. And so God kind of gets fed up with it. He goes, here's what we're going to do. Bring the, have the leader of each tribe bring a walking stick, their staff, with their name carved on it. Bring it into the tabernacle. Leave it in my presence overnight. And the staff that buds will be the person that I have chosen to be my high priest. And they would know that that was God doing it because it doesn't happen naturally. These walking sticks had been cut from the source of life. They were cut from the tree, and they had become dried, dead sticks. They don't bud. They leave the sticks, or the walking staffs. Aaron's staff not only buds, it produces ripe fruit. And so that staff becomes a symbol of God's chosen high priest and of resurrection power, because you have life coming out of death. Then you got the tablets, right? These are the tablets that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. And the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the place where atonement happened. Its New Testament equivalent is referred to as the throne of grace. But this was the place where, literally, mercy was dispensed. All of this points to Jesus. Every detail, every piece of furniture, every decoration points to Jesus because God was so intentional in his preparation, so excited for the redemptive work that he was doing that even the furniture in the temporary tent is all about Jesus because everything is about Jesus. Cool, so it's like Better Homes and Gardens Bible Edition. Okay, so look, it's been, it's been a little bit since I've gotten an angry email, and I feel like I'm overdue, so I'm going to do something here just to see if I can get one. For those who like to uh, grumble about churches with lights and mist machines because we don't need all that nonsense, what is this, a rock concert? Old Testament worship that was detailed and designed by God was a highly immersive experience. When you walk in, Sight, touch, 
sound, and scent are all engaged. There are priests whose entire job was to light the fancy candles. That's your fancy lighting. And there was so much incense burning. When you go in, you are covered in a cloud of incense. That's your mist machine. If anything, what we're doing wrong is we're not putting enough mist into the room. We're so sorry about that. We will fix it in the future. Oh, this is why we don't give you a microphone, Doug. <laughs> Long before rock concerts took lights and smoke machines, they were used in the worship of God. Because Old Testament worship was a full-on sensory experience. But really, we're going to spend all this time talking about furniture. Like, who cares? Why don't we just skip this and move on to the next thing? Because there's a really important lesson that seeing this and being reminded of this is designed to teach us. It is a lesson that the modern church seems to have all but forgotten. Because church... Something has been lost. Everything about this system was designed to show us how unclean sin makes us. When you walked into the tabernacle to worship God, you could feel and sense the presence of the holy, but you were disconnected from it because of your sin. You walk in, you're thinking about your sin as you prepare to confess your sin. So that's what's on your mind and you experience, you see all this grandeur and glory that you can't get to because of the sin that you're getting ready to confess. Everything in the system was designed to teach and to remind us over and over again, every time we went to church, that the holiness and the glory and the presence of God are out of our reach because of our sin. Church, something has been lost. In a word, it's sovereignty. When we lose sight of the sovereignty and the glory and the holiness of God, we lose sight of the significance of sin. And we begin to downplay it and to undermine it and to treat it like it's not a big deal, like it's an insignificant thing. But everything in the system, everything about the old way was designed to prevent us from doing that, from making light of sin because the old ways were designed to teach us two essential truths. God is unfathomably holy and our sin is unspeakably vile. As people, we tend to treat God like a caricature of himself, emphasizing and focusing all of our attention on one of his aspects to the neglect of the others. And for centuries, the church used guilt, shame, and fear to keep people in line. Don't do that or you're going to go to hell. Do this or you're going to go to hell. Basically, everything is if you don't do exactly what we want you to do, you're going to go to hell. It's a really effective method. God was all judgment, all wrath. He was fire and brimstone. And the image that was depicted of God in most people's minds was this angry God sitting on a throne, thunderbolt in hand, waiting for you to screw up so that he could zap you. And when he did, he was secretly going to delight in it because he kind of despises you. And that's not great because that's not God. 
But we have a tendency as people to behave like pendulums, swinging from one extreme to the other. And as we shifted away from this over-focus on the wrath and judgment of God, the modern church now struggles with a hyper-focus on the love and grace of God to the neglect of His holiness. It is not that that love and grace are not probably the most important factors of who God is, but when we lose sight of the holiness of God with it, we've lost something. See, as the people of God, we cannot just take one of God's attributes, focus on one piece of who He is, a piece that we like, and we have to try to see God for all of who He is, that we might truly know Him, not just who we want Him to be. And the first part of the story of Scripture is designed to teach us one key truth. Sin is a problem. It is a big, nasty mess of a problem that every one of us faces. So we try to make light of it, to diminish it. Oh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. God's a God of love. It's okay. He's basically just a giant care bear that shoots love and grace from his stomach like a superpower. All he wants is a hug. You can sin all you want. Just give God a hug afterwards and you'll be good. It's okay, because God's not going to send good people to hell. So do whatever you want. Do what makes you happy, because God, he loves you, and he wants you to be happy, so whatever makes you happy is good. Church, the only time that is true is if you are God. Spoiler alert, you are not. When we diminish the significance of sin, we diminish the significance of the cross. For the depth of sin and the importance of the crucifixion go hand in hand, and when you make less of one, you will make less of the other. For sin is a problem that we cannot solve. And with sin comes shame, because sin was designed to bring shame. And when we fail to understand the significance of sin, we will inevitably take the grace of God for granted. The first part of the story of Scripture was designed to teach us that sin is a problem. The second part of the story of Scripture was designed to teach us an even greater truth, that Jesus is the solution. The solution to the shame of sin is not to make less of sin, it is to make more of Jesus. To recognize the depth of his grace and love in overcoming that sin. It is not to make light of sin or to diminish sin or try to pretend that sin doesn't exist. It is to focus on the greatness of what Jesus has done for us. Because church, the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to make light of sin. We don't have to diminish it or treat it like it's lesser because our salvation is not based on us scoring well enough on some inconceivable test. We're not trying to earn or prove our way in. The beauty of the gospel is that no matter how great your sin is, Jesus is greater. Amen. No matter how frequent your sin is, Jesus is greater. And so we don't have to hide or diminish or pretend that our sin is anything less than it is because our sin is the problem, but Jesus is an even greater solution. How we understand sin affects how we understand Jesus. And our faith and our hope is in a Jesus 
who is greater than all sin, who died for all sin, and who sets us free from it. And the beauty of the salvation that Jesus brings is that when he saves us, God remembers our sins no more. When Jesus saves us, he doesn't just take away the sin, he takes away the shame that accompanies it. Jesus sets you free from guilt, from sin, from the shame that come along with it because Jesus covers it. He doesn't just take it. He covers it and takes it all away as if it didn't exist. So there is no shame. Paul says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no accusation. There's no guilt. We are free from that. Verse 6. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But in the, section, in the second section, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself for the unintentional sins of the people. The day of atonement was a huge part of Hebrew culture. In the New Testament, the high priests spent a lot of time preparation, preparing, preparing, <laughs> preparing, words are hard sometimes, <laughs> preparing for the Day of Atonement. And what he would do is seven days before Yom Kippur arrives, he would leave his home and he would stay in the temple day and night. This would ensure that he didn't accidentally come in contact with someone or something that would make him ceremonially unclean. During his seven days of social distancing, he would be practicing for Yom Kippur so that when the day came, he didn't mess it up. When the day comes, he offers a burnt offering, he ritually bathes his entire body, and he puts on pu everything pure white robes, symbolizing that he was free from defilement. He puts his hands on the head of a bull, and he prays for the sins of himself and of his family. Then he goes into the most holy place, lights some incense, sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat, and comes back out. That is what prepared him to be the mediator between God and man. When he comes back out, there are two goats. He casts lots. One of the goat, whichever one wins, depending on how you define wins, gets slaughtered. And he takes the blood, goes back in to the most holy place, and repeats the process, this time atoning for the sins of Israel as a whole. Comes back out. Again, and then we have goat number two called the scapegoat. The high priest puts his hands on the head of the goat and he confesses all the iniquities, transgressions, and sins of Israel. He places all the sins of Israel on the head of this goat. And then they lead the goat out of the camp in a giant parade where the people chant and shout, bear our sins and be gone. And they send the goat out into the desert. And when the goat leaves, there is a sense of national relief because this was the day that the people of Israel let go of the guilt and shame that they carried for their failures. Can you imagine carrying the weight of shame for every mistake, every shortcoming, and every failure for an entire year? And then the sense of relief that you would have on this special day where you get to let that go. This was their Easter. Yeah, this was a time of joyous celebration after the goat is gone. They have a great big feast. There's dancing and rejoicing and a whole bunch of things that good Christians don't do. Verse 8. By this... 
the Holy Spirit indicated that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. The old ways did not provide access to God, and they were an ineffective system. Take a quick look back at verse 7. The Day of Atonement, all the preparation, all the sacrifice, all the rituals, the pomp, and the circumstance, what sins did that cover? Not all sin, only the unintentional ones, the sins of ignorance. Right? So when you're driving down Carolina Forest Boulevard, you look down, you realize you're speeding, and you slow down, that sin is covered by the sacrificial system. When you're zipping back and forth, changing lanes without using a turn signal, cutting people off, riding their bumper, and driving like a full-on maniac just so that you can weave through, put all of their lives in danger to get stuck at the same stupid red light anyway, that not covered. Willful, intentional sin had no covering in the Old Testament system. There was no way to deal with or to address that sin. There was no way to atone for that sin. So if you committed a willful, intentional sin, you're out. You're done. You don't get to come into the tabernacle anymore, and your sin will always be on you. There was no hope for it in their system. And that brings us back to the problem of David. who willfully, knowingly committed adultery with Bathsheba, whose murder of her husband Uriah was deliberate and premeditated. There is no sacrifice in the Old Testament system that would atone for his sin. No blood, no animal, nothing that could be given to make that right. So what does David do? He doesn't turn to sacrifices. He doesn't try to prove that he's a good person by living a good life and balancing out the scales of his moral living. He does the only thing he can do. He comes to God with a repentant, broken heart, and he throws himself at the mercy of God. His church, grace has always been our only hope of salvation. Grace is the greatest gift that was ever given. That an infinitely holy, infinitely righteous, infinitely good God who His character is perfect justice would find a way around His own nature to reach down in our wretched depravity of sin and rescue us from it to make a way to overcome the just problem and to offer us mercy he is incredible. And oh, oh, I know, you shouldn't say that. Because when you treat sin like it's a big, significant thing, you make people feel bad for committing it. You make them feel guilty, and that's, that's not good. No. Failing to address the significance of sin does not destroy guilt. It destroys gratitude. The point of all of this 
is not, oh, look at you, terrible sinner who've committed such great sins. You need to feel so bad. The point of understanding the depth of sin is not to make you feel guilty. It is so that you can appreciate the even greater depth of grace that God had in rescuing you and I from it. Guilt is a tool of the devil now. Shame is now a tool of the devil. For if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. It is the devil that does the accusation. And so when you bring accusation upon yourself, when you hold that guilt upon yourself, when you walk in that shame in your own life, you are choosing to align yourself with the devil rather than with Jesus. Because Jesus says, that's not you anymore. I have taken all of that away. I have paid for all of that. You have no business going anywhere near guilt and shame anymore. Jesus says, I have made you new. Don't argue with Jesus. The point of all of this, the decorations, the furniture, the rituals, and the system was to help us appreciate what Jesus has given us. See, the old ways, they were insufficient to meet our needs. But if we lose sight of those old ways, if we forget what things were, then we will fail to appreciate what we have now. We will lose sight of the gratitude that we should have for grace because we've missed what Jesus was saving us from. In the old way, you had no access to God. The best you could do is maybe get a couple of minutes in your entire life with the guy who went into the presence of God. But now, thanks to Jesus, from the least to the greatest, we all have direct access to God. In the old way, you went through all the work, all the stress and the guilt and the shame. You went through the rituals and the sacrifices and all of that pomp and circumstance to take away guilt and shame for accidental sins for one year. In Jesus, all sin, the guilt and shame of all sin for all time has been taken away so that you and I will never need to access it again. It is gone. It is done. As far as the east is from the west, it's done. It is a greater system. It is a greater way. But when we lose sight of that sovereignty, when we let go of that holiness because we don't want to actually treat sin like it's a big deal, we lose sight of the significance of what Jesus has done. In Luke 7, Jesus tells this parable. Two men owe the same guy money. One owes a great debt. The other owes a very small debt. And the guy who was owed the money decides to forgive both debts. And Jesus asks the question, who will love him more? And the religious leader he was talking to says, well, the one who had the greater debt forgiven. And Jesus says, you have judged correctly. The one who is forgiven much loves much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Can I tell you a secret? None of us were forgiven little. Not one of us. I don't care if you grew up in church, if your first word was hallelujah. Right? You got baptized when you were five years old. You brought 72 people to Jesus, and you're just out on the weekends dunking people for Jesus. I don't care. You haven't been forgiven little. 
every one of us has a great big debt of sin. The difference between those two things is how we perceive our sin. If you view your sin as small, your love for Jesus will be small. But when you view your sin for what it is, this great big massive thing, your love for Jesus will be that much bigger because he's the one that saved you from it. Understanding the separation and the weight of sin in light of the gospel of grace will cause you to experience so much more peace and joy and hope in Jesus because you will recognize more clearly and more fully what he has saved us from. And so we need to look at the old ways. We need to understand so that we can be reminded, here was the separation, here was the effect, here was the things that we lost because of sin because now that those things aren't lost, we should be grateful for them. Because when you look at the church in the first century, you look at the church today, they don't look similar, do they? And you wonder, right, what happened to us? I mean, you got people that were getting tortured and beaten, imprisoned and killed for the gospel, and they are preaching it boldly. They are worshiping in prison after being tortured, celebrating the goodness of God for all that he has done in the midst of their pain. And you go, what happened? Why don't we see that anymore? Gratitude. Gratitude. Gratitude is what fuels pursuit. It's what fuels desire. Gratitude fuels sacrifice and devotion. All the things that Jesus calls us to do, all the work he is trying to do in our hearts and in our lives is fueled by gratitude. So when you take away the gratitude, you take away the motivation and the drive to do and be what Jesus has called us to do and be. We don't have a tabernacle anymore. We got rid of all the furniture. We don't use it. What we do have is this. A regular reminder of the depth of the love that God has for us. Of the cost and weight of our sin that God bled and God died for it. Church, please hear me. The purpose of this is not to emphasize wow, your sin is so bad. But wow, our God is so good that no matter how deep our transgression, He chose us, rescued us out of it, not because we deserved it, not because we were worthy, but because He loves us. That there is no sin that you can commit that is greater than the grace of God. There is no failure that you can have that will cause God to turn away from you. There is no shame. There is no fear. There is no guilt in the people of God because Jesus set us free from sin so that we could walk in the newness of life. And that new life is a life of peace and joy in His presence. You don't have to stop at the petting zoo anymore. You can go in. You don't have to carry that guilt and shame with you every single day anymore because it's been washed away. 
Jesus has set you free. By this, the body and the blood, Jesus has set you free. So every time we take this, every time we participate as a community as of believers in communion, we should remind ourselves of the significance and the weight of sin so that we can fill our hearts with the gratitude that we should have for our Savior. So if you have the bread, the body that was broken for us, let's take that together. And the blood that represents the life of Jesus that was poured out in death to give us life. This is what fuels our pursuit and devotion to Jesus that we would never forget or neglect the beauty of his love for us and how far he was willing to go. Let's take the cup together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to ask for your forgiveness. And having times where I don't stop to express my gratitude. I get so distracted by things that I want or things that I don't have. Frustrations and annoyances in life that I begin to grumble. When the only thing that I have any right to do in your presence is to fall before you. And never stop saying thank you. Forgive me. And fill our hearts the gratitude that comes from an understanding of what you have done for us. That we would never make light of the sacrifice of Jesus, but that our passion and understanding for it would drive us to do all the things that you would call us to do, to leave behind our life of sin and to go into the world and to serve as light that shines in the darkness for your kingdom and your glory, that every breath we take would be about you and for you, that our gratitude would be as endless and as boundless as your grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for grace. Amen.